0: Hi, it's Joanna Oki here and welcome back to The Deal Room Podcast, a podcast proudly brought to you by our commercial legal practice, Aspect Legal. Now, today we take a close look into deal-making activities within Australia's booming childcare services sector with industry expert Liam Hennessy of the boutique M&A and broken firm ABBA Group. Together, Liam and I will talk about the trends, drivers, strategies and opportunities for buyers and sellers in this niche area. And we also touch on the subject of the benefits of niching as well. So keep listening and we'll get started. Ladies and gentlemen, are you?
1: Okay, here we go. You're listening to The Deal Room Podcast. Join us as we bring you the inside scoop on business sales and acquisitions.
0: Get across trends in
1: the area. And hear the industry's best recount their real-life tips, traps, and experiences. Now, here's your host, Joanna Oki.
0: So, Liam... Thanks for coming on board to uh, chat with us today. No,
1: thank you for having me.
0: My absolute pleasure. So, look, Liam, I hear that you specialise in the complete childcare vertical of childcare developments from pre-DA, DA DA approved, to business sales and tenant and freehold investment. So, basically, I'm hearing here everything uh, childcare sector related in the M&A area.
1: Yes, correct. That's you? That's it.
0: (laughs) Okay, good. All right. So, and in today's discussion, I guess we're going to drill into this sector to provide a little bit of specialised overview of particular industry sector, which we do from time to time. So, let's start out with what your thoughts are about how the childcare sector is perhaps different to other industries um, when we're looking at M&A activity.
1: Yeah, sure. Absolutely. So, look, the key difference that I find it is throughout the, I guess, the whole uh, realm of the industry, from buyers uh, to the sellers, um, to corporate structures, to uh, the importance of locations, whether it's geographically or near particular hubs of, you know, cities or train stations, schools, and all those sorts of things. It, it's like a little industry within itself when it comes to obviously the, and also the development side of things, to the also the freeholds, and the business. They've all got their own little structures and uh, little uh, key points to, to keep in mind in those sort of directions. And that's what I like about it. Compared to other industries like retail hospitality space, for example, a lot of that is it's still retail, same as, I guess, childcare. You are dealing with it is you know B2C as opposed to B2B. But my experience with the retail hospitality sector, you are actually selling the business of the uh, you know owner is usually the, the goodwill. Um, with the childcare industry, I find that it's a lot different, usually run under, under management, um, center management are in place um, and people in the childcare sector like to grow and uh, you know, have a portfolio. And then obviously, you've got some big players out there too that have uh, been in the marketplace for, for quite some time now. And there's a lot of entry points to get involved um, and a lot of exit points as well. There's multiple ways to, to add value. You know, with that said too, there's big uh, detractors in value as well, if not done correctly.
0: That's interesting. I'd really like to drill into that a little bit more then. Let's talk about the, let's talk about both of these areas. Let's start on the positive. Let's start on the positive. How can value be added to businesses in this industry? Yeah, sure. Yes, we're talking about preparing them for sale. Is that what you mean in terms of value add?
1: Well, there's preparing for sale, um, but there's also uh, dedicated exit points along the process as well. So you could you could start a development site. So you could have raw land, which isn't uh, DA approved as of yet, but it could be ideal location for a childcare centre. I sold some raw dirt in the ponds, the tail end of, of last year, not even subject to DA approval. It was an absolute... Oh, it was a pearler of a site. The group that contacted me, actually, they're residential property developers. They saw some that I had been doing. I heard some good things. So they gave me a call. Um, I went and met with them. They showed me the portion of land where it was situated. Within the first couple of minutes, I was like, here we go. Here we go. This is, is, you know, the site of all sites.
0: And can I ask, what was it about the land that were the pointers for you? What made you get so
1: excited? Yes. So it... (sighs) There's are so many, but look, to put it bluntly, there's key things that everyone looks for straight away. It's corner blocks, nice square blocks, um, whether it's large enough to facilitate um, an underground car park, which can obviously then maximise the, the amount of places that they can have, but also the ability as well to, to not having the need to have an underground car park either based on, or well, at that time, council requirements, but now it's very different, and uh, the fact that it was... Opposite of school, literally opposite of school. There was a main road, uh, there was another main thoroughfare main road, two key junction points together, um, obviously the ponds being a, you know, a very nice and trending developing area for the you know, affluent professionals and young families. So the demographics were, were all ticking the boxes. There was um, very minimal centres in the area and those minimal centres, in fact, had full occupancy as well. So it shows that there is demand. So it was just ticking all the boxes. I have my own parameters on a spreadsheet that I put together. So I asked for the land size, the different frontages, and I can put together within you know, a few minutes um, how many places you can fit on there, whether that's through underground car parks or just on the just a one, one story. Through that, that also gives you how many staff you need, how many car parks you need, and your unencumbered um, and encumbered uh, indoor and outdoor areas the different age group splits something that I've put together and really spent a lot of time on so you can probably probably realize that I that I like the space
0: yeah 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 yeah
1: I've invested a lot of energy and time into it.
0: I hear it, Liam. And I love that. Like, I think, you know, that makes for a lot of success, you know, being really passionate about what you're working in. I, so I can hear it, Liam. I like
1: it. <laughs> <laughs> well, look, that's on the development front. The reason why I mention that, because that's the starting point, you know, that's that foundation. That's where it all, all begins.
0: And before we move on from that, just looking at that development side concept a little bit more who is it that would come to you at that point you know obviously investors who are are these people who are already thinking childcare, so they come to you they don't come to me I come to them right okay I go straight to them tell us how you do that (laughs) (laughs)
1: look the the first thing I do is I'll build a list of prospects to work out obviously based on the price I need to work out who's going to find the most value the first port of call was getting involved with the, the big players in the market. Um, they like to have that control from the ground level. They like to, as I say, control. They like to um, pick the location. They like to do their own designs. They like to do their own facades. They like to streamline and ensure that the way that their floor plans work, continuity through all their different brands for efficiency purposes, but also just from a branding front um, as well. So that was the point. I went straight to the top. The group that was able to purchase the land, develop the land and operate the centre. And that's what I did. I made about five phone calls and had an offer within a couple of days. So, completely off market.
0: Wow. So, you found the land first. So, you went looking for the land and then you matched the, you then sort of sold the land plus idea concept to your target. Well,
1: the landowner came to me. I let them know very quickly how valuable that land is for a proposition of a, of a childcare. When I say valuable, I don't exactly mean on a on a monetary term. I mean, yes, this has legs. You know, this is worth uh, pursuing. I asked them to give me a couple of days and I'd get back to them with a full feasibility. Feasibility came through positively. And I went out as soon as I was confident with it. And obviously, the vendor was, was confident on the the likelihood of actually selling it as a childcare remembering that they're on the residential development side with subdivisions and things like that. They were putting out there. The groups that I've engaged were very, very excited. They wanted to put off, I got offers down subject to DA, but this particular group put down an offer which was the same monetary amount as the others, but not subject to DA approval.
0: Wow. Okay. Amazing.
1: So there's confidence on their side that they can get it done.
0: And so it's interesting that you're talking about these whole range of considerations that you have in relation to an actual block and location before making the decision about whether or not it is the ideal piece of land to then convert into a childcare centre. Correct. How much do you think buyers focus on this when they're looking to buy a currently running business and should they be thinking about this more? Because as you're talking about this, I'm thinking of a few clients that we've worked with in this area and I'm not sure that they have gone through the process as deeply as I can hear you talking about it in terms of assessing the site, in and of itself, you know, usually they'll assess the business, but I'm not sure whether or not there's a really detailed consideration of the site. What's your thoughts? That
1: first portion on, on a foundation level carries right through to a business sale when it is operating. You know, everyone talk, talks about multiples on EBITDA and, and things like that. It is, in fact. Those, I guess, intangible fronts that aren't on the p and and your balance sheets um, and your occupancy reports and things like that, that maximize that multiple on EBITDA. So due to obviously myself wanting to utilize uh, my time best, having that knowledge at the start, I can really start to pinpoint what's, what's a good location and evaluate where I'm going to spend my time and energy. And people that I'm speaking to, they value that. They value that I'm giving them good sites. They call me and say, what have you got? What have you got? What have you got? And I take the time to, if I have something and it's not suitable for them, okay, please let me know why this isn't suitable and what it is you're looking for. And then I'm building a case. I'm building a case. Okay, case. This, is, this is what I'm seeing now. This is what they want to see. I'm going to spend my energy finding that and I can potentially sell it before it's even listed.
0: And so, does that help you find opportunity for buyers then? So, does that help you find sites, for example, that you say, well, this is a great site, but perhaps the business isn't performing great. So, therefore, there's probably a lot of room for value add for a buyer coming in because it sounds like it's business issues, you know, management issues rather than potential.
1: Absolutely. There's many things that can detract value in a, in an operating business, and a lot of it comes down to staffing management. Anywhere between forty to sixty percent of business income is an expense dedicated to staffing. Forty to sixty percent. Look, that's a big variant, <laughs> as you can as you can understand. So, so you can see just just how important it is to get those ratios right. And when I start looking at those P&Ls, it's the first thing I look at is. What's our percentage of turnover for staff? What's our percentage of turnover for rent? And then you start to work out, okay, this is where things have gone wrong. Straight away, there's your potential. There's your tangible potential to add value once you purchase, increase your ROI. And the reason why I enjoy the space as well is the buyers and the the sellers or anyone in the space, they're astute business people. They have time for you if you can bring value. And you learn a lot through that. They learn a lot through you as well. So if I can't bring value to somebody, I'm not doing my, my job right. So I've, I've focused on ensuring that everything that, that I can advise is of value. So that's where that lies.
0: And so it sounds like you have quite a broad, you know, you deal with child care centres in a large breadth of their life cycle, obviously. You know, you deal from the development side through to the, you know, selling a fully functioning and running business. Absolutely. From my perspective, that's a bit different from talking to brokers. Most brokers deal generally just at, at that particular point of sale. So it's interesting that you've got this exposure to different parts of the life cycle. So, where does it end? Like, as in, do you also then work with the business owners and the centres in transition and in value adding after a sale as well? Or um, do you sort of cut out at that point?
1: It all comes down to the relationship on that particular front of, uh, you know, assisting them after the purchase process to continue their value value, it kind of, on a broking front and a sales agent front, it kind of does end at that transaction level once it's sold. But I've got some great relationships, and especially with this group that just purchased the two sites on Tuesday. They're looking for another three acquisitions before the end of the financial year, and another five by the end of the year also. So I sat down with them at the tail end of last year, giving them my advice um, As to where I see the market and how the best way that they can get in and obviously set a real nice strong foundation for their enterprise moving forward. So the first thing was we we're talking about development sites because I had development sites at that particular time. I had some tenanted freeholds as well. Um, but effectively what I said, I said, look, the best thing to do, buy a couple of businesses, get some positive cash flow learn how to best operate the centres on on an efficiency level, but also the communication of the centres with the directors and the managing directors as well to really get a feel of how they can set, I guess, their ethos from the start with the actual businesses to begin with. Once they have that positive cash flow um, where they're going to move down the front of getting some development sites as well, maybe even some turnkey opportunities um, but these particular sites that they just purchased, we're going to be looking at um, getting more in that particular location, or at least five kilometres around that that particular area, so that uh, you know they've got the economies of scale in line as well.
0: I love it. I love it. That sort of perhaps brings me to thinking about trends in the industry. I get the sense there's a little bit of consolidation, but I just wonder whether or not we're heading into maybe a period of consolidation, much larger consolidation into the future. What's your feeling about the trends in the industry? What What do you mean by consolidation? I mean by groups purchasing many centres because I see, you know, just anecdotally that there's a lot of childcare centres popping up at the moment. We've got lots of individual operators who are moving into the space. So, quite often what I see in an industry is this wave of lots of individual operators and then a move to operators then starting to, it's starting to be taken over by consolidation.
1: Okay. So, you're talking about big groups.
0: Exactly. Yeah, that's right. Okay. Okay. We, and we've seen this in lots of sectors. I just get the feeling that childcare is perhaps right for this to really go off.
1: Look, it comes and goes. You know, I've seen some things in the market with some, with some big players. I'm like, oh, why are they doing that? Why are they doing that? <laughs> you know, maybe, maybe they need the cash. Maybe they need to do this. Maybe they need to do that. And then it comes out, they're going growth now. So they had to raise some capital and they're growing now. Um, and this is what their, their acquisition front is. So I, for myself, I ensure that I have relationships um, with those people, uh, with those uh, particular groups, but then I guess on the the smaller, you know, mum and dad sort of operators, as smaller operating groups as well that want to have, you know, start growing their portfolio, you know, three, five, seven, maybe ten centers and things like that. The only way it's going to consolidate is if they sell. So that's how that's going to work, and it depends on how they're operating. They won't sell um, if they're in a position where they're financially strong on a. On a on a business level, but on the actual operation level, if they're going well, we've seen uh, you know drops in multiples over the last uh, couple of years. Um, obviously, the property market as well has has been affected in some portions of uh, the the commercial property market. Obviously, residential, which affects density and areas and and all those sorts of things as well. So, what I ended up deciding uh, probably around October last year um, was okay, it's time to focus on. On businesses, let's get let's get some some business transactions happening. Uh, a lot of those people that purchase those businesses, uh, you know, they could be up to ten to fifteen years old, and they're they're ready to move on. It sometimes you know the, the wind just is, is blown out of the sails, and they're ready to move, and it's up to me to hold those relationships um, with those people. But I make that my responsibility to get in now and really build a foundation of, uh, I guess, a contact in advisement and also, you know, someone that they can download and talk to me about how they're going and talk about how things are going as well in different areas, remembering as well, geographically it's almost like a different world. You can just move, you know, to a different suburb, you know, 10Ks across and, you know, you're, you're in a different realm of environment. Some areas are highly dense, highly dense with childcare centres. Some aren't, but it all comes down to to the validity of it and I can do that feasibility in a couple of hours. As long as I can uh, focus on it 100% for a couple of hours, I can get it done in a couple of hours. And the way that I work as well is I use all any data in the childcare center is good data. So even if you're selling the business, I can look at data for for land sales as well and property, you know, tentative freehold property sales. Um, And the reason why that's important is because you can start to draw the parallels of where things are starting, where they're exiting, what value they've gained from DA to construction certificate, from DA to you know, the certificate of occupancy. And you can really start pinpointing uh, where where things are where things are sitting and, and advise on, on those sorts of fronts as well. Yeah, I guess you can really start assisting people with their strategies and even perhaps even give them an insight into a strategy that they may not have even considered.
0: Yeah, right. If we take it back and and look at a business owner who has a childcare centre at the moment, say, for example, your um, mum and dad operator, what are markers for them of when is a good time to think about exit?
1: Okay, Uh, let's steer towards the positive on maximising their value. So we're looking at what their occupancy percentages are at. Um, Anything above 80 is just... It's music to my ears and any buyer's ears as well. Um, You also want to have a look at there, as I mentioned before, your percentages of turnover, especially your staffing. With those occupancy reports um, as well, you can work out how many children are actually um, in active sessions. So then you can actually have a look at how many staff they've got rostered on Um, and you can start to advise, look, you've got four casuals coming in for this particular circumstance. I think that's not really warranted you know why isn't the, the center manager facilitating you know this this particular portion of children oh that's because the center manager does this 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 and that oh, okay no dramas so that's going to be a question so I ask all the questions that any buyer is going to ask up front I build my case to begin with not only to validate whether I can sell it um, and whether I can sell it at the price they want but also to ensure that when it does go on the market, the days on market are minimized by preparing it effectively. And another cursor for them to want to get at also is how many years they've been operating and how many years they've been operating above that 85, 80 to 85% occupancy rate. That's important. And you know, if they were to you know, think about um, selling, i go, okay, well, how's your lease sitting? What, what have you got on the lease? What options have you got left? And uh, evaluate it you know, from there. So it's like, all right, well, you know, your operation's in good order. You know, you've got great staffing ratios. You've got a good lease. These are our recommendations on a sale front. What do you want? What do you want for the business? They always have a price in mind, whether it's realistic or not, that's irrelevant at the start. The first thing I do is I want to validate that price that they want.
0: So tell us that sort of business that's running sounds like at its optimum performance level, if it's got more than 85% occupancy, it's been running there for a while and we've got, you know, a great lease term. So what sort of multiples are we looking at for this business then?
1: If we're going to you know talk on the higher side, five five 5.5, and the beauty of the childcare industry as well and what I really, really like about it is, it's not just what's on the PL. When the buyers going in, they normalise the PL for their own ROI. So you're going to get different offers based on all different situations. So I do whatever normalisation I can. I'm not an accountant, but I do whatever normalisation I can. State that this is, if it was running in this scenario, this would be, you know, this would be the, the you know, the net profit and therefore the EBITDA and therefore the multiple. I don't expect them to accept those particular. Normalization's is 100%. It's so that they understand just how far or how close to the market is running it at, at optimal. And it gives them the position to, especially on the economy scale um, level, if they've got centres in the area, they can come up with their own offer and their own EBITDA and work from there.
0: Great. Okay. And then what's the total range that you've seen between? It'd be interesting just to hear like what the lowest and the highest has been in terms of multiples that you've witnessed out there.
1: Yeah, well, going back a few years now, there were a lot of centers being sold over you know, the market, rate. Geez, I saw some at eight, nines, even twelves at a particular point. Some of them, yes, it was, uh, I was just like, oh, geez, they've done well. But don't get me wrong. I mean, that, that was a really, 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 really good center. Don't get me wrong. But it's unrealistic. You know, someone goes, you know, you'd be speaking to a vendor or even a buyer and they go, why is the multiple at this? I saw they're all selling at this, which may be under. Um, but then you're speaking to the vendor, it's like, oh, well, one sold a couple of years ago at 12 times multiple and therefore I think my, my business is worth that. Then, you know, your hat comes on of education. They need to be educated. They're not misled or anything like that. But as a business owner, you think your business is, is worth the highest amount possible and I give them the facts, let them know what the situation was, why that maybe happened. I, I try and dig into those sort of transactions on an Intel front and then really give them an idea. Okay, well, look, that was in the Northern Beaches. You're in South Sydney, for example. You have different demographics. Everything's extremely different. The land isn't worth as much. You're not near Three or four primary schools and, and these sorts of things, you know, there, there weren't wasn't many centers in the area, you know, all that sort of stuff. It comes back again as to why I like the industry. They take all of that on board. A lot of who I communicate with, it's never, I know right, I know right, I know right. They take on board what you say. I give them a valuation on three sort of levels. You know, this is probably the highest mark. This is where I think it'll sell. And this is probably the lowest mark. If I can't have some sort of reassurance that, They agree with me on that front, then look. Sorry, you know, I'm going to have to part ways here. You know, good good luck. Love to stay in touch with you. And nine times out of ten, they they end up coming back um, and say, "Oh, we've done this now. We've done this now. What what are your thoughts?" Okay, yeah, fantastic. You know, we're we're gearing here, and at the same time as well, I'm also uh, keeping that that particular opportunity in the back of my mind in case I do come past a buyer and say, "Look, this is it." Oh, they might happen to live in in Seven Hills. They want to stay in Seven Hills. So this business might be a little bit over, but they're willing to pay that because they live in Seven Hills and they know it and they know that they can do it.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. The classic issue with living in the area. Well, and I guess it can be a positive, right? You know, the area.
1: But I'll never list a business for that small portion of buyer.
0: Yeah, right. So firstly, just quick question, going to your 12 times multiple sale, do you remember that sale? And we'd just like to hear, you know, what was it that got that Value for that business,
1: yeah. So that was about three years ago. First of all, so we're talking a different time. It had what was it? Is like it was like a, something like 118 places, massive. We're looking at um, different price ranges or different price per places, averaging out between the three age groups of around 130, you know, uh, 130 dollars a day per place, and it was sitting consistently at a 90 to 95 percent occupancy for about five years. So we're we're talking you know record breaking stuff here. I wish I sold it, but uh, it was really good to see that someone was able to achieve that, and obviously the the purchaser as well. They purchased a good business. Um, I'm not saying they paid over, but that was that was the biggest biggest multiple on EBITDA that I came across.
0: Interesting. On the flip side, then, do you see many childcare centres coming to you who are really struggling, and what do you do with them in terms of a the sale then?
1: Yeah. I don't want to call it hand-holding. It's definitely not the, the right way to explain it. It's energy and attention to really let them understand where things have gone wrong, how it can be fixed. And if they do decide to fix them, fantastic. But usually the, the energy's gone. The, that's why it's dropped, especially when they're in good areas and things like that. So I let them know, okay, what do you want or what do you need? And then I go back to the process of quantifying that. So, you know, if we look at, say, the, the net profit, do a little, you know, tiny little add back schedule while I'm sitting in there, do a your multiple and EBIT. I go, oh, look, sorry, but it, we're going to be pushing it here. We're really, really going to be pushing it here. Let me go back and I'll do a, a further normalization. So that's when I dig into uh, the occupancy reports, transaction records and things like that and build a couple of scenarios. Okay, great. Now, if we use this particular EBITDA or net profit scenario, we're sitting at this mark, which is obviously over the market rate. But if it sits somewhere in the middle and someone does find at least 50% value in those particular normalizations, we can have this done. And uh, funny you mentioned that, that was the sale on Tuesday. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Two of them, two of them, yes.
0: But, you know, I guess there's some businesses out there that aren't necessarily making profit, right? You know, that happens sometimes. So, where do you go? Do you have buyers for those sorts of businesses?
1: Yes. I mean, you speak to them all the time. You're looking for, people are looking for, I don't want to say a bargain, but they're looking for a low-cost, high-growth opportunity. And definitely, you, you have a lot of great conversations and you learn a lot through those as well because you start to not only add to the knowledge that you have but you're also adding to the knowledge of what people believe as well and sometimes they're a little bit misguided and sometimes I'm like, oh, geez, that's a good point, isn't it? I'll I'll keep keep that on board. And it comes down to just getting inspection, get them in front of the business. Even though it's probably not going to be sold on the profit and loss and things like that, they still want to see that because they still want to see, okay, How much do I need to do to to turn this around? How much capital investment do I have to put down to make this work? That's really how it goes. But get the inspection happening, get them in front, get them into the business.
0: I guess drilling into the sale of a childcare centre, what's some examples that you have seen that have caused real issues in a deal?
1: Okay. Um, I'm not saying that I'm perfect, but I haven't really had any major concerns during a deal sometimes it really just comes down to sometimes the the solicitors are going a little bit too heavy sometimes
0: (laughs) those solicitors
1: particular front yes i get it
0: i get it (laughs) But
1: sometimes it it, it happens and and you know uh, unfortunately um as frustrating as it is sometimes you know sometimes they're not using the right solicitor it might be the solicitor that they use for another transaction um and it wasn't correct and that's why commercial solicitors are extremely valuable that do the word commercial, they're commercial. Um they understand how how things work and and also assist on how to how to get things done as well. Little things sometimes, you know, they'll try try things on like reinvesting the deposit and little things like that. But I've had some horror stories in the past with other businesses. And what I ensure now is I foresee everything at the start. I'm building the, the due diligence schedule Upon listing the business because what's the point of getting an offer, getting accepted and then due to your lack of uh, due diligence as as a broker, it falls over at the end. There's no value in that for me. There's no value in that for the buyer and there's no value in that for the vendor. So get everything in gear. Get everything going and make it all calculated and make it all make sense.
0: I think you're absolutely right. Nothing worse than getting through the commercial terms and then suddenly, you know, from a due diligence perspective, if we're acting for a buyer, you ask for some, you know, fairly obvious documentation. Then there's crickets, you know, and it makes you worry about the business (laughs) when that happens, right? Sure. The most
1: important thing throughout the whole process, just ask the right questions. Just ask the right questions.
0: Maybe, Liam, if you can talk to us about what are some of those, like we talked about some of the areas of value add. So, you look at utilization of staff and, you know, is there right the right utilization of staff and can we move that a bit to, you know, pull a bit more profit out of the business before as we're priming it for sale and obviously occupancy rates. But I guess that's obvious, you know, that's a marketing thing in many instances. I'm sure every business is just pushing to get the highest occupancy they can.
1: Absolutely, but it's easier said than done. That's the thing. It's easier said than done. That will push down the, the multiple and then it's obviously pushing down the profit as well. And you're not just looking to have a strong occupancy rate for six months to prop up that PL and upon exit. It doesn't work that way. If you're looking for a good business, remember, you're looking for a sustainable growth or sustainable profits, which is obviously the, the key indicators for a good purchase.
0: What are the other areas of value add then before sale? other than those, that sort of area that we talked about.
1: Before Before sale, it's when you have that emotional connection that, okay, look, I'm going to have to divest here or I'm looking to divest here. Let's keep everything running as it is. Let's, let's just keep things nice and smooth and working well. Let's keep the, the company culture nice and vibrant. Remembering that the parents are dropping off their absolute prized possession. They're their child, they want to have confidence all day <laughs> that they're being looked after completely. So, you know, you want to continue that standard that you have upheld during that point. And then adding value too, look, you can go and increase your, your DA. You could be licensed for X amount, but you're choosing to operate at this amount. You can structure leases that are dedicated on a percentage of turnover or maximum achievable turnover. So even if the occupancy Rate goes down, and therefore your profit goes down, that the rent still stays the same. There's little things like that. And that's something that I'd advise if you say, you know, I, I broke it down and their rent's 20% of turnover. I'd be like, oh, okay. Um, are you the landlord? Yes, we are. Okay, well, let, let's rework it this way a little bit. Let's, you know, get this done. And remembering as well that it's not all about the money at the end. There's so many negotiation factors that'll get a deal over the line and that will bring value. And there's not really any straight answers. You can probably tell because each buyer has their own idea of what value they need. So I try and find as much value as possible across everything from a mum and dad purchaser, from a large group, centers in the area, and just maximize my spread and hit the targets at the top that will find the most value first and then work my way down.
0: Obviously, it sounds like you've got quite a deep specialization in in this childcare sector. And as I hear you talk, I can really hear what the benefits are for a broker in making the choice to niche. It sounds like you know you have the opportunity to get to know a sector so much that you can then see different opportunities. I'm talking here also about your ability to focus on this stage before the business sale, which is the development sites as well, as well as, I guess, all of the information that you're able to offer buyers and sellers about the the particular sector. What got you into niching in this area?
1: Very funny question. Um, When I joined the group in, geez, what was it, 2016? might have been 2016. My first phone call was with a prospective purchaser looking for childcare. That was my first phone call. She was an incoming inquirer, uh, managing director sitting next to me. Oh, all right, Liam, it's time to, uh, it's time to uh, you know, put your hat on and, and you know, start you know, your career in this space. Let's get on the phone and have your first conversation. I didn't really know what she was talking about but i wrote the notes down i built a little bit of rapport with her and i still speak to her nearly every time i have any opportunity at all and from there i saw how dynamic the space was it was so it was very very dynamic i could see you know all those different exit points i could see it was also very calculated too and i could also see that it's a good space to work in because well for me it was because it's something that i can really put my energy and attention into on an education front, and then on that education front comes confidence. And then when confidence comes through, that's when you believe what you're saying and you believe that the value that you're giving through a conversation um, and an advisement level is rubbing off and all of a sudden you start getting traction and, and it starts rolling, rolling in from there. I worked previously for about five and a half years. I worked for a textile import-exporter. We were the Australasian agents for three Italian uh, fabric mills selling to the Australian market. This is premium, premium quality fabric for high quality brands, big price points. So I was already used to dealing with clients that uh, saw value in quality. So if they're buying a quality product, they expect quality service. And through that, sort of just, hi, how are you? And a nice smile. It's quality service on the front of, okay, this is what I believe is, is right for your business strategy or structure. These are the trends in the markets. Look, this fabric might be a little bit more expensive, but you're going to save costs on your production line if you, go, if you do get to that point. So I sort of saw it as a little business that I can work on for myself because there are so many different levels to it. And I enjoyed interaction with people that saw value in quality goods. And I see childcare as a quality space. And through that, they need quality service. Um, and then need quality advice so i've been assured that i've uh, i've been able to deliver that and what i need to continue doing on a you know just on a on a very high level front is add value just continue adding value everything's changing all the time just continue adding value
0: so are you saying then that you came to niche in this space not so much because you were looking for the concept of niching but just because you found a particular industry that had these hallmarks to you of something that you liked working on as you say you saw sort of the quality business in the industry so that's what attracted you rather than the idea so much of niching as a whole is that right?
1: I fell into it completely absolutely fell into it I had the first opportunity that I went out to within the first couple of months there was a um, it was a DA approved site the people developed who were selling the DA didn't actually own the land they just wanted to sell the DA and you know very, very weird and very strange, but because I was so keen to to get into it, I did all that hard work at the start by calling every single top group within the uh, childcare space. Started building relationships with them. I had five inspections in one day from all the all the the key players. I probably should have put another half an hour gap between them because they're all running into each other. I was like, oh, we're gonna have a battle. We're gonna have a battleground here. But from there, I started to understand the importance of. The questions that they were asking, I thought, "Geez, I'd like to know this." Geez, I'd like to know this. Oh, this, this is good. This is good. And then you start to, you know, hear hear little things in in conversation. You go, "I'm going to note that down." Um, and before you know it, I've, I've built my own strategy as to how I do my feasibilities and who I approach and what I decide to to spend my time working on.
0: Second last question, Liam. What advice do you have for brokers out there? Based on your path, so you ended up niching, whether or not you intended to. But is that a good strategy for brokers to look at, or, or just generally, what recommendations do you have for people maybe starting out in the industry?
1: You look, it's a hard gig to, to begin with. Um, so the first thing that you you know that you really need to need to do is is understand what keeps you motivated, understand what what keeps you driven, and understand how you can make money as well and how you can enjoy it. I'm, you know completely autonomous position um, we're getting new brokers on as well that are all going to be on an autonomous front also so if you can find something to dedicate your, your time and energy into and be an expert in it absolutely don't force yourself into it but you need to show passion and drive and that, and that comes that just rubs off when you already enjoy something so much
0: Excellent. And then I, I guess the last question, Liam, how do people find you if they're interested in buying a childcare centre, selling a childcare centre or indeed looking at setting one up from the ground up?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So uh, ABBA Group, so abbagroup.com.au um, will bring you to our website. Email address is as simple as H at abbagroup.com.au and mobile number, which is 0431 three two one zero two two. get in touch whether it's from the start of the development all the way to a tenanted freehold, um, whether you're a purchaser um, or a seller, I'll be able to give valuable insights to ensure that you know you are actually spending your time effectively and finding the right space and I'm able to do very fast uh, feasibilities as well, which I've definitely spent a lot of time on to make that as as possible.
0: Great. Well, look, thank you so much for your time, Liam. It's been great talking uh, about your sector and about, you you know, I I guess the benefits as a whole of meeting because I think that's one element that's also an overlying concept of the stuff you've been talking about today. So, thanks for coming on board and we'll put links through in our show note to all of those links people were talking about in case you were running along by the beach at the moment, lucky you, (laughs) and can't note it down. Okay, fabulous. Thanks, Liam. Absolutely. Thanks so much. And that concludes our episode with Liam Hennessy of ABBA Group. This episode was all about the deal-making activities within the childcare services industry. If you're interested to learn more about this niche sector, you can reach out to Liam and his team at the ABBA Group by checking out our show notes at www.thedealroompodcast.com where we'll link through to their website. There you'll also find a full transcript of this podcast episode if you'd like to read it in more detail. Well, look, I hope you enjoyed what you heard today. If you did, please subscribe to The Deal Room Podcast on Apple Podcasts or your other favourite podcast player to get notifications straight through to your phones whenever a new episode is out. Thanks again for listening in. This has been Joanna Oki and The Deal Room Podcast, a podcast proudly brought to you by Aspect Legal. See you next time.